Aesthetic fatigue. The point of these distinctions is that merely useful things disappear more completely than meaningful and pleasurable things. The latter seem to obey a more lenient rule of discard. This rule corresponds to a state of mental fatigue, signifying a jaded familiarity more than muscular or nervous exhaustion. Déjà vu and trop vu are equivalent expressions in French criticism for which no current English phrase exists, unless it be tedium. Its nature and conditions first attracted attention in 1887, when Adolf Gohler wrote on fatigue, as it affected the many changes of architectural style that were so striking when eclectic taste was dominant. They were striking not because architectural change was then more rapid than it is today, but because there were only a few historic styles to choose from, and it seemed to the men of the period that they were rapidly exhausting these reserves of the past. Goller, an architect and professor at the Polytechnicum in Stuttgart, was an early psychologist of artistic form who belonged to the tradition of abstract formalism and aesthetics initiated by Herbart. Since about 1930, Goller's expression former Mundung has come into wider use, although no one has pursued his ideas any farther. To Goller, architecture was of an art of pure visible form. For him, its symbolic content was negligible, and its beauty arose from a pleasurable but meaningless play of line, light, and shade. Goller's principal hope was to explain why the sensations of optical pleasure are in constant change as manifested in the sequence of style. The nucleus of Goller's thought is that our delight in pleasurable forms arises from the mental effort of shaping their recollection. Since all mental knowledge consists of such memory residues, the enjoyment of beautiful forms requires a well-stocked memory. Taste is a function of familiarity. Our pleasure in pure form diminishes as we succeed in reconstituting its complete and distinct memory. A total memory presumably includes the frustrations and dissatisfactions arising with any recurring unit of experience. Familiarity breeds contempt. These total recollections occasion fatigue, and they lead to the search for new forms. As the mind fastens upon content, however, the rule of former mudong weakens, and the object holds our attention in proportion to the complexity of its meaning. The artist himself is most exposed to tedium, overcoming it by the invention of new formal combinations and by more daring advances in previously established directions. These advances obey a rule of gradual differentiation because they must remain as recognizable variations upon the dominant memory image. The differentiations are bolder among young designers, and their tempo becomes more rapid as a style approaches its end. 
If a style is interrupted early for any reason, its unused resources become available for adaptation by participants in other styles. The work of the human mind cannot be accounted for by any isolated process. Goler underestimated other forces in the complex interplay of actuality and the past, and he lacked an explicit conception of the tradition-forming power of replication. The Typology of Artists' Lives More readily available for observation are the lives of famous artists. The pace and tone of an artist's life can tell us much about his historical situation, although most artists' lives are uninteresting. They fall usually into routine divisions, apprenticeship, early commissions, marriage, family, mature works, pupils, and followers. Sometimes the artist travels, and occasionally his path crosses those of more colorful persons. Cellini, who is not an interesting artist, led an exciting life, which kept him from the difficult business of art. The individual in search of a personal expression, when confronted with the local stock of possibilities available to him upon his entrance, must select the components he will use. This gradual accommodation between temperament and formal opportunity defines the artistic biography. Our evidence is limited to careers that have withstood the assaults of time. We have only the successful outcomes to all these chancy adjustments between the individual and his moment, and from them all, all only a few types emerge, of which our knowledge is continued to Europe and the Far East. As a literary genre, artistic biography was not practiced elsewhere. By definition, a formal sequence exceeds the capacity of any individual to exhaust its possibilities in one lifetime. He can nevertheless imagine more than he can execute. What he executes obeys a rule of sequence in which the positions but not the intervals are determined. Both what he imagines and what he executes depend on his positions in the sequence upon his entrance into the form class. An affinity exists between each of these opportunities and the corresponding human temperament. There are slow-paced patient painters, such as Claude Laurent and Paul Cezanne, whose lives contain only one real problem. Both men were alike in their dedication to the portrayal of landscape, and they were alike in finding outmoded teachers for their effects. By relying upon his Bolognese predecessors, Domenichino and the Caracci, Claude renovated the landscape of Romano Companion antiquity. Cezanne turned to Poussin, like so many French painters, with an interest in tectonic order. The resemblances are not mere biographical coincidences, nor are they temperamental affinities alone. The anonymous mural painters of Herculaneum and Boscoreale connect with those of the 17th century and with Cezanne as successive stages separated by 
irregular intervals in a millinery study of the luminous structure of landscape, which probably will continue for many generations more upon equally unpredictable rhythms. The type flourishes only in those urbane periods when the ascendancy of special vocations allows person of a ruminative tendency the leisure to achieve their difficult varieties of excellence. Under these conditions, and for as long as the old pictures or their derivatives survive, painters of a certain temperament will feel summoned to meet their challenge with a contemporary performance. Ang continued upon the lines marked by Raphael. Manet accepted the challenge put before him by Velázquez. The modern work it takes its measure from the old. If it succeeds, it adds previously unknown elements to the topography of the form class, like a new map reporting unexpected features in a familiar but incompletely known terrain. Sometimes the map seems finished. Nothing more can be added. The class of forms looks closed until another patient man takes a challenge from the seemingly complete situation and succeeds once more in enlarging it. Altogether different from these ruminative artists of a single problem are the versatile men. Their entrances may occur at either of two junctures, of social or technical renovation. The two kinds sometimes coincide, as in the Renaissance. Technical renovation is like a spring thaw. Everything changes at once. Such moments in the history of things occur when new techniques suddenly require all experience to assume their mold. Directors of cinema, radio, and television have thus transformed our world in this century. And the Vasari, who should find his entrance ready for him about a generation from now, will then record and magnify these legendary figures of sound and shadow, whose myths already rejoin those of classical antiquity. The other moment for the appearance of the versatile men occurs when a whole society has been resettled along new lines of force after great upheavals, when, for a century or two, the endlessly complicated consequences, implications, and derivations of novel existential assumptions must be set in order and exploited. The greatest concentration of these versatile artists appears in Renaissance Italy, where they flourished as a recognizable social type under the patronage of merchant princes and small nobility, of popes and condottieri. Alberti, Leonardo, and Michelangelo are its most celebrated Italian representatives. Jefferson was an even rarer type, the artist-statesman. These epochs of social displacement when new masters take control are, of course, not always periods of artistic renewal. The revolutionary transformation of French national life at the close of the 18th century witnessed new and striking fashions, but there was no fundamental artistic renovation comparable to that of the 15th century in Italy. In general, 
This renewal has to occur in works of art and among groups of artists, and it cannot come from government decrees. There need no be no renovation at times, when ample future scope still appears in the current traditions. As the versatile man is called into being by the time of renovation, so the patient student of single problems flourishes in a time of settled futurities. It would be unhistorical to suppose that any period of time ever has a uniformly patterned structure, such as the foregoing remarks are in danger of suggesting. But it is also unhistorical to represent a given period in the history of architecture, like the Periclean Age, as a time of unpatterned or unlimited possibilities. Certain aims had already been accomplished, and the outlines of new possibilities were apparent. Certain other biographical patterns among artists can be identified. The number is small, perhaps only because so few bi biographies of the world's artists and artisans are preserved, but more likely because the variation of type is inherently small among the lives of inventive persons. Thus, Hokusai resembles Uccello as an obsessive painter of a type to which Piero di Cosimo, Rembrandt, and Van Gogh also belong as lonely and withdrawn men to whom painting was a complete life. They are, they are neither ruminative and patient nor versatile and proleptic, but solitary men who totally occupy the positions given them upon their particular entrances. Even architects, whose work demands gregarious virtues, can be found among their number. The careers of Francesco Borromini and Guarino Guarini belong to this obsessive group by the strange, intense, and complete reality with which they clothed their lonely, imaginary world. A contrasting type is the evangelist whose mission is to improve the visible world by the imposition of his own sensibility. No major architect of the present century has been able to practice without assuming this evangelical garb. The missionary artist is often a vigorous teacher and prolific writer, flourishing best when he is in command of academies of right practice. J.A. Gabriel, the leader of French architectural taste, or Frank Lloyd Wright and Sir Joshua Reynolds are examples. Each of them exercised an autocratic taste, founded upon selected conventional traits, which the older men took from an aristocratic tradition, and which Wright took from H. H. Richardson and Lewis Sullivan. Two distinct kinds of innovators occur in the history of art. The rarest of them are the precursors, like Brunelleschi, Masaccio, or Donatello, whose powers of invention find a proper entrance no oftener than once every few centuries. 
when new domains of knowledge are opened through their efforts. The other kind is the rebel who succeeds from his tradition, the better to have his own way, either by altering its tone like Caravaggio, or by challenging its entire validity like Picasso. The precursor may also be a ruminative or an obsessed artist like Cezanne. Without being a rebel, the precursor quietly lays new foundations within an old preserve. The precursor can have no imitators. He is also always sui generi, while the rebel appears in crowds, because the way of the rebel is easily imitated. The precursor shapes a new civilization. The rebel defines the edges of a disintegrating one. The genuine precursor usually appears upon the scene of a provincial civilization where people have long been the recipients rather than the originators of new behavior. The rebel like Picasso finds his situation at the heart of an old metropolitan civilization. The necessary condition for a precursor is that his activity be new, for a rebel that his be old. Precursors have to mold their work in the shell of an older guild like Ghiberti, who was apprenticed as a goldsmith, or find a place for it at the bottom of society like the creators of the early cinema. The rebels, on the other hand, who shape their lives on the fringes of a society they despise, have to form a new civil condition in the pursuit of some integrity of life and work. Gauguin's is the most celebrated example in the special form of the artist as a bourgeois refugee continuing the romantic convention of Parisian bohemian, bohemianism among primitive villagers in Tahiti. These six types of careers, precursors, hommes à tout faire, obsessives, evangelists, ruminatives, and rebels all exist at once in modern Occidental society. Of course, they cannot all occupy the same formal sequences. Each sequence affords the opportunities of its particular systematic age to only that group having the temperamental conditions for a good entrance. As we look at other societies and at earlier times, it becomes impossible to document the existence of any variety of characters. The Bohemian cannot be identified before the 17th century in Europe or China. Indeed, in older societies, it is likely that the borderlines between careers were much less apparent than they are today. That ruminative and obsessed artists merged, like precursors and rebels, or versatile and evangelical men, without the clear separation noted today. In the Middle Ages, the individual artist remains invisible behind the corporate facades of church and guild. Greco-Roman and Chinese histories alone report in any detail the conditions of individual artists' lives. A few names and lines of text are all we have about Egyptian dynastic artisans.
The records of the other civilizations of antiquity in America, Africa, and India tell nothing of artists' lives. Yet the archaeological record repeatedly shows the presence of connected series of rapidly changing manufacturers in the cities and slower ones in the provinces and in the countryside, all manifesting the presence of persons whom we can call artists. They did not all flourish together at the same time, as they do today in the great cities of the principal states, where more classes of forms coexist than there are talents to staff them. For instance, progressive painting today mainly attracts rebels, while the precursors and the ruminatives either paint as obscure men under a protective coloration that shields them from success, or they begin, belong to other guilds like stage design or advertising art, where their peculiar dispositions are more urgently needed than in painting for fashionable dealers. In older societies, fewer sequences were in active development at one time, and the opportunities for the whole spectrum of temperaments were correspondingly more modest. Tribes, courts, and cities. A provisional explanation of the fast and slow changes in the history of things now emerges. The intervention of men to whom art is a career, of men who spend all their time in the production of useless things, occasions the shift from slow to fast happening. In tribal societies of a few hundred families, where everyone must raise food most of the time by endless toil in a harsh environment, there is never enough margin beyond subsistence to allow the formation of those specialized guilds of artisans who are exempted from growing food. In such societies, the manufacturers show change, it is true, but that change is the change of casual drift, of cumulative habit, of routine repetition with minor variations, which through the generations yield a characteristic pattern. The pattern resembles that of the changes in the things made under more complicated social structures. It shows the expected progression from early to late systematic age within the different classes of pottery, housing, and ritual instruments. Distinct form classes succeed one another. Within the scope of three or four generations, a clear shape corresponding to the physical identity of the tribe can be detected by the attentive student. But the progression, the succession, and the shape all are more muted and less distinct than in larger societies, and the pace is slower. Less happens. Fewer inventions occur, and there is little conscious self-definition of the tribe by its manufacturers. This contrast selects only extreme cases. The tiny tribe of a few scores of families struggling to survive, and the vast metropolis with its crannies and ledges sheltering the mediations of many inventive minds, to exemplify the most sluggish and the most vertiginous kinds of change. Between them are at least two intermediate positions,
it is too simple to suppose that the gradient is a continuously smooth one. Between London or Paris, or the forest tribes of Amazonia or New Guinea, the gradations of social organization are far from continuous. They are more like a mountainous escarpment with bold high tiers of cliffs separating several terraces.